Our scripture for this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can turn there now or just follow along on the screen behind, or you might just remember it. We preached on this two weeks ago, but we're going to approach it from a slightly different angle this morning. Hear this word from the Lord. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God's may, servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Before I get to preaching, I just got to tell you, I love to hear y'all sing. You don't know what you did for me this morning. My word. Some of y'all have been really getting connected with God in these first four days of Lent. I'm quite sure of it. Uh, there's something, something changed in your spirit already. But I also understand that there are a few of you who are already regretting your choice of what you gave up for Lent. A few folks here who are already starting to miss the, uh, the chocolate or the, uh, the after-dinner drink or the, the, the social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is you gave up there. Some of you for whom you're already realizing how hard this is going to be. And I don't want to make your life harder, but um, I'm going I'm to risk piling on just a little bit and asking you to take up one other Lenten discipline. For the teenagers here, this one's going to be fun for you. Not because you're going to enjoy it in and of itself. You probably won't. You probably won't care that much about it. But if you pay a lot of attention to it, if you stick to this discipline, you will have the opportunity to correct your parents a lot. And I know how you love that. Here's what I'm asking. Give up talking about God and talking about Jesus in the past tense. Hear me that? Give up talking about Jesus in the past tense. Don't say Jesus taught. Say Jesus teaches. Don't say Jesus wanted. Say Jesus wants. Don't say Jesus hung out with sinners and ate with tax collectors. Say that he still does. If you stick to that, if you talk about Jesus and manage to leave behind the past tense, it'll, it'll, it'll trip you up. You'll have a hard time. And by the way, I want to go ahead and give you the exception here. I know you're already trying to think of it. And if you want to talk about the things that Jesus has done just once and for all, the things Jesus is never going to do again, fine. I'll make an exception for that, okay? If you want to say that Jesus was born, fine, okay? If you want to say that Jesus died for our sins, absolutely. We should never, ever forget we should always, always remember the things that Christ has done and that don't need to be done any longer. But we also should never let what Christ has done and the fact that he did die for our sins cause us to forget. We should never let that cause us to forget that Christ is risen. We don't say he has risen. We say he is risen and that he is living and that Christ is leading us today and speaking to us even now. 
When you start paying attention, you'll realize that it's really, really easy to fall out of that, and you'll be astonished by how many people will tell you that Jesus Christ is Lord, present tense, and then will fall into talking into the past tense. I don't think they mean to. I think it's on accident. I think they just kind of forget. Uh, It's kind of like how we forget that the word would is the past tense conditional of the verb will. And so we start saying things like, what would Jesus do? As if he's a character in a movie. Or as if he's a historical figure we'll never meet. But when we are looking for guidance, the question that matters a lot more is, what is Jesus doing right now? And what is Jesus inviting us to do with him? We are called to believe in a God who is living And when we ask those questions, what is God doing now and what is God inviting us to do with him? We ask those questions in the conviction that Jesus will answer because we say that Christ is living. And the same Holy Spirit that is in him is in us too, to be our counselor and our guide. And to be a Christian is to believe in a living God. And so we insist that God still speaks, present tense, right now. You can't be a disciple without discernment. And discernment is the word Christians have for the habit of listening for what God is saying so that we can follow where God is leading. Discernment is the habit of listening to what God is saying so we can follow where God is leading. And for these next few weeks, we're going to be talking together about discernment. It's the most important habit that we're going to cultivate together over this season of Lent. More important than than any of the other things we might give up or take up for the season of Lent. And as we go through this season of discernment or this conversation about discernment, um, you should know that this is not the safest topic in the world to talk about because historically within the larger Christian church, our biggest divides come over the question of, well, who gets to tell us what God is saying to us right now? And some traditions and some uh, some. approaches to Christianity, some branches of our faith, uh, there are those who say that discernment is a very much a top-down thing. We have those whom we have set aside and appointed to do that holy work, and they are very important, and we listen to them, and it comes from the top down. And then there are other Christian traditions, other branches of Christianity that so hate anybody ever telling them what to do, that for them, discernment is a very individualistic, very localized thing. In some churches, discernment is real simple. You just say, well, this is what we've always done. In other churches, discernment is also very simple because you just say, this is what everybody else is doing. But for Christians, true discernment always starts in a different place than that, and it always starts in the same place. And in our United Methodist doctrinal standards, we say, I'm quoting here, Scripture is the primary source and a criterion for Christian doctrine. The primary source, meaning it all comes from there. That's always where we start. The conversation always begins with scripture. When we are looking to discern the will of God and hear what God is saying to us right here and now, it always starts with the primary source, scripture. And then it says, and the criterion of Christian doctrine. Criterion meaning that when we are done, when we think we've got it figured out, uh, when we think we have got our summation of what the scripture says, nice and neatly packaged, well, we go back to scripture at the end of all that, and scripture is still the standard by which we measure our discernment. And you might remember, 
Two weeks ago, Woods and I preached on the same passage that we just heard and saw together, uh, read together from 2 Timothy chapter 3, a very familiar passage to any conversation about the Bible. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it means when uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy that Scripture is inspired or Scripture is God-breathed. And two weeks ago, we talked about why we can trust that and what that means. But Timothy includes, or Second Timothy includes more than just what Scripture is. It does more than just tell us that Scripture is inspired. It also says that Scripture is useful, which is how we get back to discernment. See, it doesn't just matter what Scripture is. It matters how we use it. It matters how we read it. I sent Woods uh, a piece of art a couple weeks ago. I think we have it available here. Moses is pointing to the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. And somebody in the audience is saying, phew, I'm glad my name's not thou. That's just one of the infinite number of ways that we can misread Scripture. That we can read it and totally miss the point. We could read scripture out loud. We could read it in some modern English slang translation. We could read it in the original Hebrew and Greek. We could memorize it from beginning to end. There have been some through Christian history who have been able to do that, memorize all the scripture from beginning to end. And none of that makes any difference if we are not also listening for God when we are listening to the scriptures. Evangelical New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, we have to remember that when we talk about the authority of Scripture, that is a shorthand for what we really mean. What we really care about is the authority of God, who's the one who has given us the Scriptures. And so we can't read the Bible the way we would an instruction manual for putting together a lawnmower, all right? Instruction manuals are very good things. They are very useful things. But the whole point of an instruction manual is that you should not be reading it very often. The best case scenario is that you read it once. And if you read it well and do just what it says, you never have to read it again. I'm a dude. I wanted to say the truth, which is the best case scenario is you never read the instruction manual. But I'm trying to take up good habits. So I'll concede. You probably should read it once. But if you have a lawnmower, or a washing machine, or a job, where you are constantly having to pull the instruction manual off the shelf again to relearn how to do what it said, that's probably a sign that you have a bad lawnmower. It's constantly breaking, you always have to fix it. It's a sign you've got a bad washing machine. It might be a sign that you're bad at your job. If you just gotta keep pulling that instruction manual off again and again and again. Why was that I do again? That's not the relationship God wants with us. To discard us like a bad lawnmower. So we read Bible a little bit differently than we would an instruction manual. We also read it differently than we would, say, a novel or the way that we would watch a movie or a documentary. We don't use it as a form of escape or to get away and just leave to go into another world entirely and get away from the stresses or the worries or the realities of life. That's not how we read Scripture either. It's not a diversion. It's not an escape. When we read the Bible, we are reading it the same way that we have a conversation. 
conversation with someone that we really deeply want to get to know. You know those conversations. Sometimes they have jokes and sometimes they tell sad stories and sometimes they say things just because they happened. And any really good conversation includes the moment where you want answers from somebody and it also includes moments where what you really want is for the person opposite you to ask you a question. And in all of that, what we know and what we really want to know in a great conversation is we just want to know the person in front of us. We want to know their heart. We want to know their mind. And we want to be known in return. And the more that we know, the more we know of the heart of the person that we are talking to, the, even at the point where we get to where like, we know what they're going to say next before they even say it, that does not make us want to talk with them less. In a great conversation, it makes us just want to keep going and keep going with that conversation and talk even more. In 2 Timothy today, Paul offers us some guidance about how we can have a conversational relationship with the Bible. And we begin this season that we call Lent, which is traditionally a season set aside for listening to God. These instructions from Paul are a great place for us to start our conversation with the Bible. First key, Paul says, is that if we want to have a conversation with scripture is that we need to read scripture in conversation with itself. We read scripture in conversation with itself. That's what Paul's getting at when he says that scripture is useful for teaching. Or in some of your translations, it's gonna say, it is useful for doctrine. Scripture is constantly teaching us how to read scripture. And when we talk about doctrines in the church, all we really mean with that is that we're talking about our summaries of the scripture. We're talking about our, our teaching about scripture. There are some scriptures that tell us what other scriptures mean. Or to put it another way, when we read scripture, we read it by interpreting the minor themes through the major themes. We use the major themes to interpret the minor themes. It's very important, so make sure you hear it again. We interpret scripture by using the major themes to interpret the minor themes. That's what Jesus did. When some Bible scholars came up to him and they said, what is the greatest commandment? And he didn't say, ah, you know, they're all great. No, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second commandment is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. There are some stories in Scripture. There are some instructions in the Scriptures that if you read them in isolation, might give you a picture that is the exact opposite picture of God that you will find elsewhere. For example, if all you had of your Bible was Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9, it would be very understandable if you came away from reading those two chapters with the impression that God chooses to love some people and to hate others. That God chooses, not on the basis of merit, but on God's own choosing, to save some and reject others. When John Wesley 
read the book of Romans 8. That's what he found in it too. That's what it seemed to make sense to him. It was a very popular teaching, by the way, in the 1700s. You can still find it in pockets of Christianity today. That God chooses some and doesn't choose others, rejects others, does so ahead of time from God's own choosing, not on the basis of any choice or decision in their lives. And that was popular teaching in John Wesley's day. And when he read Romans 8, that's what he found there too. That's how it sounded to him. But then John Wesley remembered John 3, 16. It says, God so loves the world that he came into the world and gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 17, that says, and the son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. And then John Wesley also remembered 2 Peter 3, 9. It says that God does not desire that any should perish, but that all might turn and come to him. And John Wesley, most of all, just looked at the overall arc of Scripture and said that he could not reconcile it with this idea of a God who only loves some of humanity. And so John Wesley said that that reading of Romans 8 and 9 that says, God loves some and rejects others, in John Wesley's own phrase, he said, it runs counter to the whole tenor of Scripture. The whole tenor of scripture. And know what it didn't cause him to do. It did not cause him to say, we ought to take Romans 8 out of the Bible. But it did cause him to say, I must be reading this wrong. There must be more to the story. There must be something going on here that I don't understand. And so he kept studying and reading until he could read Romans 8 differently. And here's what's crucial. He didn't throw out the hard parts of scriptures and he didn't throw out the easy ones. He let the major themes explain the minor ones. This happens all the time in the Bible. Pharisees once came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, how on earth can you allow your disciples to gather food on the Sabbath? Don't you know that's a day of rest? It's clearly instructed in the scriptures. He said, how can you heal on the Sabbath? It's a day of rest, it's set apart, it's in the 10 commandments. It's there at creation. God rested. So Jesus went to a story that not many people thought about or heard from the book of 1 Kings, a story about David. And he came to the end of that story and after explaining it and reminding them of that, he said the larger point is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus took the major theme and let it interpret the minor themes. He reads scripture in conversation with itself. And he teaches us to do the same thing. But of course, then we get to the real nubbin of it. Which points are major and which ones are minor? Love God, love your neighbor. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Those are the majors of the majors, right? We got pretty wide agreement on that. But once we get past those two, it's real easy for me to decide that the major themes are the ones I like best. And so when we read the Bible conversationally, we also always read it in conversation with a community of reason and tradition and experience. We read the scriptures in a conversation 
with a community of reason, tradition, and experience. And if you've been around Dolphin Way for any length of time or some other Methodist church, uh, you've definitely heard of those things before, reason, tradition, and experience. You're going to hear a lot more about them over the next four weeks as we talk about discernment. We Methodists have a nickname for scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. We call them the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And I'm not going to go into too much detail or say too much about those today because we got some more time ahead of us. But I will say this. Um, I didn't come up with the name the Wesleyan quadrilateral. That name was coined a long time ago. If I had my druthers, I would talk about the Wesleyan wind chimes. There's an old illustration that was used in uh, Methodist confirmation materials years ago, and I still think it applies. Imagine a wind chime that's got three tubes hanging off of it, three metal chimes, and they're all connected to a single center point. And if you cut any one of them off of that center point, it falls to the ground and it goes silent. But when they're all held together by that center point, they begin to make music, beautiful sound. And you might even be able to discern the song beneath it. Well, in this analogy, the chimes, the three tubes that are hanging down are reason and tradition and experience. But the center point is scripture, the thing that holds them all together. Reason and tradition and experience are God's gifts to us that help us read scripture better. There's a word in today's reading that's kind of hard to translate. To translate, You have to apply a lot of reason, a lot of thinking, and people have to, to translating it. The, some versions will say that scripture is useful for rebuking. Others will say reproof. Others will say conviction or convincing. The, the Greek word that's used there is used only one other time in all the New Testament. It's used in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1, where it's usually translated as either substance or assurance in the phrase, now faith is the substance of things unseen. And reason, tradition, and experience, they are God's gift to us. And the reason and tradition and experience of your community of faith gives a lot more substance to your reading of the Bible than you could ever bring on your own. So we read the Bible in a conversation with itself and in a conversation with a community of reason and tradition and experience. And we also read the Bible in a conversation with action, which is not usually how we talk about things. It's hard to have a conversation with action, I know. Stretch, your, stretch the analogy just a little bit for me. I'm trying to make everything a conversation. But I do really think that's what Paul is getting at when he tells us here in 2 Timothy, how to use scripture Use it for training in righteousness so that you are equipped for every good work. Scripture trains us. And we know from sports and numerous other fields that training is always a conversation between learning and doing. You see someone perform a skill or an exercise and so then you try and do it yourself. And usually the first time you fail. So you try harder, or you try differently, and you come to know and understand in a different way when you're doing it than when you're just watching it. Sometimes you succeed, and sometimes that success is because you've really figured it out, you really know what to do, you really know what's going on, and then sometimes you succeed because you got lucky, and you don't realize that. 
And so the next time you go and you try and do the same thing all over again, and it goes very badly, and you learn that you still have a lot to learn. Training is always a conversation between learning and action. And every conversation is like that too. We don't really know what we're talking about until we try and put it into action. That's how any conversation goes. My wife, Jennifer, she sends me the grocery list and I call her and I walk through every item on the grocery list and I'm happy to pick up the groceries on my way home and I stop by the pharmacy and I pick up Ian's allergy medicine and I did not think to ask Jennifer which flavor he prefers, cherry or grape, and Jennifer did not think to tell me because she thinks, quite rightly, that I ought to know this by now. (laughs) And so, I've seen the words on the list I've talked about the list. I go to the pharmacy and I buy the allergy medicine and then I come home and I give it to Ian and he throws it back and that is how I learned much to my chagrin that when Jennifer asked me to get the allergy medicine, she meant grape because cherry just won't do. Every conversation is like that. There's always more going on than we're ever going to capture in the words. We're always going to truly learn what we're talking about and what is going on when we put it into action. How many times have you been in a conversation or a relationship where you thought you had a perfect friendship with someone who just understood you perfectly? They've seen all the same movies you have. They love all the same music. It's like you speak each other's language, and then they act in some way that makes you realize they don't know you at all. How many times have you been in a conversation where you thought it was going nowhere? You thought somebody was not paying any attention at all, but then they responded with exactly the right word or the right gesture. They showed up at exactly the right time, and that's how you realized that they had been giving you more attention than you ever imagined. They knew you better than maybe you even knew yourself. Any real conversation is going to involve action. It's body language, it's laughter, it's tears, it's everything that we do afterward. And all of these actions are just as important as the words in a conversation. And so, we believe the scriptures speak to us by training us for righteousness. And we have to put them into action if we really want to know what God is saying to us. We read scripture in a conversation. We read it in a conversation with itself, and we read it in a conversation with a wise community, and we read it in a conversation with our actions because scripture is useful for teaching, for convincing, and for training. And if you paid close attention, you know that I skipped a word. Second Timothy 3.16 says that scripture is useful for teaching and convincing and correcting and for training. And that's because, like in all the best conversations, our scriptural conversations keep going. See, we never get to substitute our theory of the Bible, or our understanding of the Bible, or our summary of the Bible, or even the creeds about the Bible. We can never let those become a substitute for the Bible itself. There's an old saying about the church. About 700 years we've been saying this. The church is always in need of reform. And our reading of the Bible is always in need of correcting. We keep coming back to it to find what we missed, to remember what we've forgotten, to discover what was there the whole time, and we cannot believe that we missed it. 
And it's just when we think that we have the scriptures fully figured out that we most need to start over because the conversation with God is never done. And God is still speaking. Present tense. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.